Welcome to another episode of Beer Backfire. Today we've got Steve and Jake. What's everybody drinking? I have got Hardy Woods, The Great Return, West Coast Style IPA. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. What you got, Jake? Rockfish Wheat Summer Wheat Beer. Mm. Do you like it? Is it good? Yeah. So one of my favorite summer beers has been Bell's Oberon, mm-hmm. which apparently now you can't get here anymore because Bell's has a beef with our regional distributor. Company, <laughs> and they will not distribute here anymore. So oh, we can't get Oberon anymore. So I picked that six pack up just to see if it'd be I wonder how, how far out of the region you have to get to I find it. It's, I can't remember the name of the company. It's, um, Can I call the distributor and be like, fix this? Yeah, for real. <laughs> I'm drinking a PBR right now, but once I finish that, I'll have a Blue Mountain. People's Beer of Richmond. It is. I was already drinking this when y'all showed up. Proud of you, pre-gaming for the show. Yeah. This is number two. Mmm, makes for better content. It does. So, today, what I was going to try to talk about was kind of general DIY engineering you've had to do on stuff, because either the part wasn't available, or... You bought something and it came without something. Or it was too expensive to buy the fancy aftermarket thing, so you wanted to build it yourself, or, you know making stuff up, parts from other cars that just so happen to be able to fit Ooh, on yours. That's a huge category yeah. I delve in deep. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I've got a whole list over here. I was going through old build threads, and I could take up a long time just on the Cressida, but I figured I'd let y'all launch off on this one, because I know y'all have some good stuff. What have you got recently, Jake? Uh, start with you. Well, recently I've hit a uh, hang-up for one of my pranking methods. I've been having a lot of fun with the S13, and doing um, Nissan, it seems did a lot like she's a lot of the companies really in Japan where they would uh, interchange parts between models and you just had to be clever and figure out which stuff was shared between which vehicles and then you can do things like from there logically deduce what stuff is interchangeable you know if you have like a a certain hub and a rotor that swap from one vehicle you realize the caliper can probably come with it things like that so in the rear of the S13 I'm doing the Z32 aluminum uprights which I know is like actually fairly common is that that's the whole knuckle assembly right And it goes from, you go from an iron... Cast iron to aluminum. Dude, that's going to change your unsprung weight so much. Yeah. That's awesome. Now, is that same bolt pattern and everything? So you don't have to swap wheels or you're going to have like... No, you can just... The the hubs... The hub, since oh, the, the hubs, hubs are swappable. So okay, S13s, yeah. The hubs are swappable? Yeah, so, yes, since everyone does, like, five lug swaps in the S13, really all you're doing is, like, you're unbolting the hub and you're putting on, like, a Z32 hub a lot of times. Well, that has the same bolt pattern, so the knuckle has the same bolt pattern. So you can keep a four lug and do the aluminum uprights as long as oh, you Oh, so change. they're bolt They're not even press-in hubs. Yeah. They just bolt right onto the... That is one... Not to interrupt. This is, I like, haven't gotten into Nissan, so having, that's a thing I'm not familiar with. Having a bolt-on hub where it's not a press-in bearing is so handy for, like, a track car. Because, like, the, the Civic that I was hanging out with, they were changing wheel bearings left and right, just, like, unbolting them. Whereas, like, Ooh. if I was at the track, I couldn't do that. The hub and the wheel bearing are pressed together. But yeah. Uh, the wheel bearing is the same between both models. Okay, cool. So, yeah, the 300ZX and the 240SX, they use the same wheel bearing. Huh. And then you just change the... I got it. I hope I'm not using the wrong words. Yeah. Um, the hub but, is the thing that the wheel bolts on to. Yeah. yeah. And then that goes... And then that's pressed into the wheel bearing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That whole thing bolts to... The knuckle. The knuckle. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's right. the part where it's convenient because usually it's like press the entire hub face wheel bearing everything out of the knuckle yeah. and then press a new one into the that's knuckle. That's how yeah, they, it's, yeah. That's what I'm used to. It's a tight fit for sure. Like,
like one of them I actually have soaking in PB Blaster. Nice. I was about to say PBR. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, what, do, but dude, whatever works. I loosen it up, man. <laughs> Speaking of, I'm going to grab a beer. Y'all keep talking. Do it. Right. Yeah, so the bolt pattern is the same for that. So you can keep the four lug on S13. Your only hang-up is um, you either have to change to Z32 rear shocks, or since I went coils recently, I had them do the Z32 lowers on the shocks. Maybe I should have just done Z32 rear coils. Yeah, I wonder now Now that you say that, so I guess I don't maybe a little pre-roll, but you were mentioning those are the ones that seem to come up too short right now, right? Yeah. I wonder if maybe... The shaft was longer. The main those. threaded sleeve, yeah, on a full Z32 setup. Or rather, a full S13. Well, no, Z32. No, because all it yeah, only is the bottom. Yeah, no, yeah. So I'm you have the S13 upper. I guess I'm just wondering if the lower then would extend further down if it was full S13 stuff. Yeah. But since you just capped it with a Z32. Three? Two, two, two lower. Yeah, Z33 is the 350. Yeah. 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 Nissans. Um, maybe that's a shorter. Yeah, I was about to ask, like, send them a picture and ask if there was, that's a thing to worry about. I, these are my first coils. I'll tell you, the other thing is sometimes your overall length does decrease a fair amount because of the way the valving works. You just lose mm -hmm. travel. As long as. Or you don't lose travel, but you, you're. The actual shock doesn't need to be, you know, the, you, you hold up the coilover next to the original strut assembly and it's like the coilover is like six inches shorter, but it still has the travel built in. So you're not True. Really it's just it. the internal construction that's the mm. word I was looking for is such that the shaft can travel further down into the lower. So I'm pretty sure my Miata stuff came up a fair amount shorter okay. to begin with, mm -hmm. but you still ultimately. And can also thread it out far enough. I mean, the thing I would do is pop it on, bolt it together, put the thing on the ground, and see if your wheels are just slammed up in the wells when they extend it out. Even if they are shorter and like there's less droop travel, as long as you have like you know you get the right height where you want it and you still have that up travel, having it limit how far down it can travel is a good thing. Like that's one thing. Yeah, that's yeah that, the that's the other thing. If your spring rates are a fair amount higher, your springs aren't going to compress very much oh, yeah. when you put it down. So if you look at your droop length isn't that far, it's only going to compress a smaller amount with a higher spring rate when you do set it down, which means it's not going to tuck all the way up in. It's just going to shorten by an inch or inch and a half or something. You just have less droop, yeah. like Jordan said. That's, that's one thing I really dislike about my current setup on the Corolla is I'm running MR2 front struts in the back, basically, mm -hmm. internally. And the droop travel is still really far because Toyota, and that's what they do. But I'm only running like seven inch long coilover springs, so when right. the wheels drop all the way, there's yeah, like a huge gap. Yeah. So like when I go over a really bad hats. bump and the wheels have to travel down really far, the springs come loose and you, when it comes back down, it clunks. Would it be crazy to do one of those restriction straps like they do for the solid rear axles? That's exactly what I did on the Crescent. <laughs> I was gonna say it's not crazy. It's a thing you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Your other option is find some cheap helper springs off of something else that have the same did. diameter and mm -hmm. pop those in there, it and still then you wasn't just have far something. Enough. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. It yeah, helps, but it's crazy. still when it if it can get to. I mean, would you prefer that? to lifting an inside rear though. Oh, like, it still does I mean, that. On a front wheel drive car, that doesn't matter. Even with that much droop, mm -hmm. it's still- it's Because it's got, a, it's got a ADCO 
yeah, rear sway bar. bar. Oh, okay. So when you're so going the around sway a turn, ends up limiting yeah. mm-hmm. how much it'll droop. So it's unless bow through, like you go over a big bump, like at, you know, yeah. the final turn at Dominion, you hit that rear bump and the whole car goes, gets jounced, yeah. and then it goes plunk yeah. real bad. Yeah. But it was an issue with the with the Cressida. I actually had this on my list. I made a list. Because that was a solid axle car, I got custom-made springs for it that were shorter than the stock ones, but a higher rate. So if I were to go over a hard bump, like a really hard bump in that car, oh, enough, yep, they would because they're out. separate. Yeah, yeah, so they're separate. I we had a little bit of a glitch there, and my computer went to sleep, and I had to reset everything. So, so he's trying to work with Jordan's new sick two-wheel ride. Yeah, my Razor scooter. His new Razor scooter. Got two for, for twenty bucks on Craigslist, bro. It's a solid deal. For took, zooming around the paddock. I took it up to. Uh, Dominion yesterday to go watch uh, Adam run his CRV at on a Porsche. It was a Porsche Club of America event they were doing up there. Interesting factoid: it was called the Capital Autobahn Track Cross. Really? If you get technical, yes. If you went and asked anyone at Shenandoah Region Porsche Club of America, because my company sponsored that event, oh. I was not there. He- but we did sponsor it. Apparently, in terms of raw time, so it was the field of people there was obviously mostly thirty-seven. Porsches. I think he said they had thirty-seven people from the Porsche Club, mm-hmm. and there was a bunch of Miatas and Minis, and there was an Exo set there that was by they far destroyed the everything. Thing. Yeah, and he then... was like fourteenth overall, which is crazy. Yeah, I was. Uh, I I happen to know Scott Krastek, who came in third. Nice. He was the in his Miata, which mm-hmm. was like second fastest full body car mm-hmm. there so i texted him while i was at the awards dinner they were talking about who went fast and whatever because i was there last night i texted him i was like i hear you destroyed some porsches today up at dominion yep <laughs> in a miata there were some sick porsches there too i'm like i'm not a huge porsche guy because i will never be able to afford one but there was like a guy there in a boxer that was just he was throwing that thing so hard it was really fun to watch yep. They're really well composed. The Caymans, especially, just those yeah. mid-engine cars. I think if I ever, ever went in that direction, Cayman S, a Cayman S, or you know, ideally a GT4. Good luck. They say the Cayman S is like they ain't cheap, but they're impressive. Yeah, the the Cayman I've heard. I, obviously, I've or a never Cayman GTS. One. It's if you throw an LSD in there because they don't put one in from the factory. That's so weird. Yeah. Well, mo- like most MR2s didn't come with one either. The Lotus Elise doesn't have one. Yeah, but there's a stark difference between a Toyota mid-engine and a Porsche. You would oh, think yeah. especially in a Cayman S or a yeah. GT, like a higher they, they might trim, have a, higher a sportier trim. trim would come with it. My my, What I've always heard was that they didn't put the LSD in the Cayman because it would be as fast as an I-11 on track, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> then you come into the Fiero problem. I've I've yeah. ridden passenger seat in a GT4 around VIR mm-hmm. and in a GT3 RS, and honestly, they did not feel that much different. Mm-hmm. You know, the, that, GT3 the, that GT4 was hitting <laughs> 155 on the back straight, God, and the 3 RS was hitting 165. Like it, it's substantial. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's seconds in lap times, but consider. Considering what you get for the difference in price, like a decent Cayman to a really nice Cayman like a GT4 Mm -hmm. is an incredible car. Fun fact about... I wouldn't want to pay to maintain it, though. Oh, absolutely not. 
Fun fact about the Cayman, mm -hmm. when Toyota and BMW were developing the new Supra, they were benchmarking it against the Cayman. And mm. it has, it's like, I forget the exact dimensions, but it's like 90 something point something inches for the wheelbase. It is identical to the 10th of an inch. Interesting. From the, the new Supra to the Cayman. It's exactly the same. Huh. Anyway, so are you putting fortunes on your S13 and, it's, <laughs> and aluminum Z32 uprights with yeah. weird funky ball joints? So yeah, the, the Z32 uprights are a common swap for the S13. I'm probably one of the few people doing the aluminum uprights and keeping four lugs and original brakes because, you know, I'm not, I, I don't know. I, Mr. I just Moneybags? Yeah, I'm not Mr. Moneybags and I don't see the reason for having like the mega huge brake upgrade for something I don't plan on like dumping a turbo V8 or something obnoxious, you know. You're still stock power plant, right? Yep. KA? Yep. Yeah, it'd be fine. Just throw some nice pads and fluid in there, you'd be good to go. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm doing. <laughs> but um, anyway, the aluminum uprights, it's real common swap, but what they had failed to mention on the on the forums, what's left of the forums, is that you need this special weird little conical bearing sleeve thing to go over the, the rear ball joint, because it's the same, the ball joint is the same between the 240 and 300. Um, it's just you have to have this special little conical bushing thing. For the taper. Yeah, for in the, the taper, knuckle. which is just, it's obnoxious. Yeah. But no one brought it up, so I'm, I'm stuck there right now um, for getting those coilovers on because I can't put them on to check fitment. Because not to mention finding bolts, the finding the the through bolts for the rear was a pain because oh. no hardware store, well one hardware store. I was gonna one. say Home Depot, bruh. No. Which one no. the two main bolts yeah. that hold the strut to the knuckle? What you... uh, so my strut, one bolt. Is it one? It's because it's through. He's it's, saying oh. strut, but it's more of a shot. No, it's a, no, it's a strut. It's, it's I got you. It's like a fork at the bottom with one through bolt. I'm pretty sure. I don't really know. I, I think I. So it's got even, a single control arm, lower control arm. Do you have two control arms in the back or just one? Two at the bottom. Okay, yeah. Then I have an upper and a lower. Yeah. And then the shock. Arm. That would be that would be the if you care at all. But that's the technical difference between a strut setup suspension is that that would be your physical attachment point to the top of the knuckle it's a structural member of the suspension mm -hmm. in a strut setup as opposed to a shock and spring which just controls motion but you have control arms upper and lower to limit the camber movement that yeah and that also determine the actual action so yeah like in a strut suspension that's why jordan was asking you would have the shock even if it's a coil over the shock comes down and then has a bracket that comes over and bolts straight to the knuckle and that's the only thing locating the top part of the knuckle oh. attaching it to the car that's a Mc, true mcpherson strut today suspension. yep clips and mags yeah huh so Oh, is that a whole thing too? That's we won't get okay. off topic. But yeah. no, no, that's just is that's there just a one of those See, I wouldn't, arguments. and I wouldn't know the difference. When people between get those. real pedantic, yeah. yeah, it just if if anyone is curious, that's yeah. one of the few things that I took away from automotive tech school was the technical difference between a strut suspension and the the easiest way to remember it. Yeah, you can have multi-link, you can have. Uh, double wishbone or, or upper and lower control arm. You can have any number of different ones, but in that case, the shock and the spring are only serving to control the motion. They are not actual structural members of that system. You can take them out and the wheel isn't just gonna 
uh, fall in one. or out. It's still attached to the car completely. Whereas in a strut suspension, if you take the struts out, now it's the knuckle is not attached fully to the car anymore. Neat. Yep. Cool. Toyota loves their struts. They really do. Yeah, sadly, it's not. It's not ideal. It's not for because it's good for packaging. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's efficient. It's cheap. Yep. It's yeah, but a double wishbone and a lot of other multi-link are way better able to control alignment angle through suspension travel than strut suspension. And then is. you're not putting all that extra stress on the actual strut or shock and spring combo the the thing that's controlling the motion isn't right. also taking the stress. well and that's why a lot of the like true mcpherson strut the shock absorber itself is just an insert inside the tube mm. so the tube is like the structural member mm. that's helping hold the knuckle and locate it and then the shock absorber is just an insert inside that's helping yeah control the motion it's a little bit of a bunny trail but if you wanted to start talking about shocks inserts into strut housing oh here we go I you've got go, some good diy go stuff on, on that on right? about that so on the it's pretty common on a lot of old toyotas and actually on like 240z's and stuff like that too where they use strut front suspension is to use second gen mr2 rear shock inserts because they're like exactly two inch in diameter huh. which is that apparently everybody uses two inch diameter struts so you take those and put them in the original strut housings and you cut the strut housings to and then re-weld them to make yeah. them the appropriate length. So the, like for the for the front on the Cressida, um, I did that. So I, the front of the Cressida basically had shortened housings with second gen MR2 rear inserts in them. In for and the front. For the front in of the, the Cressida. Cressida. Interesting. Yep. And that's real common on like Celica Supras and like Starless and eight. I, I don't know if A86s are the same. Is that just because the aftermarket support for the MR2 is so much better? Yes. Like your and options the, are widely the, varied. The and, travel on the basically doing that conversion also converts it to a shorter stroke setup. So you're not going to be constantly bottoming out that mm. insert um, when you lower the car. Huh. And because it's on the rear on the MR2, it's already heavier duty because it's designed to take the weight of the engine in the back true because it's mid-engine right yeah it's probably not like you know perfectly ideal but it works really well and people have been doing it for decades so yeah you know and then on the on the corolla i took that idea and just ran with it and i took a bunch of measurements of every part that i had laying around so i had like extra first gen mr2 parts and extra second gen mr2 parts just laying on the shelf and uh for the front of the corolla i used later model first gen mr2 strut housings that have been that have you know the stock mr2 coney inserts uh -huh. but with all the brackets welded on from the corolla right and that like bolted right up and works great and then for the rear it's a little different because i had to use the stock corolla housing but then the the actual big nut at the top that holds the insert inside the strut housing, the threads were like really weird. So I had to cut that off and put in the top section of front housings from a first gen MR2 and then also first gen MR2 inserts <laughs> and then weld it all together. Wow. And it works. Yeah. It works great for the track. I would not recommend that setup for anyone who drives the car on the street, but it works awesome on the track. Huh. Yeah. Now, as far as like brackets for the front that you had to weld back on, besides what do you have? Brake hose, 
Sway bar? Uh, break the sway the bar bolt to the strut body? It okay. was mostly just the just the, the brake line bracket mm -hmm. um, was the big difference. Um, I think the actual part that hold like the, the two bolts that hold the, hold it to the knuckle were the same, I think. But I think it was just that one bracket. Gotcha. So it was, just, it was just, you know, cutting a few things and welding a few things. Pretty That's easy. Yeah, that car... So, for those of you who haven't been paying attention, I owned that Corolla before Jordan did. Mm -hmm. And even from Toyota, that car was a Frankenstein of part numbers. Mm -hmm. So going through, like, the transmission is, was originally meant for MR2s, I'm pretty sure. And then... Yeah, um, it's exactly the same as an MR2. Yeah, and then the... Uh, even like where the, the shift selector the, forks yeah, are the, 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 the linkage. Okay, reversed. that's that's what I I just would have guessed because I know that's the case yeah. for the second gen MR2 mm -hmm. versus like the Camry yeah. stick shift transmissions exactly. and stuff. That's the one change from yeah. the front wheel drive layout to the mid engine. Yeah, rear. it's just with the, the direction that the shift levers come off is reversed. And there's gotcha. so I had learned suspension stuff on that car when I was looking at aftermarket part numbers. So when I first got it, I was like, well, obviously I wanted to, I wanted to mod it and stuff. So I was trying to find like springs and things like that. And I knew TRD way back in the day once made something and um, Ibach actually made something. But then when I saw the uh, Ibach part number kit, it was also the same kit for Celicas, the first generation of front wheel drive Celicas. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. If them spring perches are the same, it's time to go to the junkyard because the Celica weighs more. Yeah. And the part numbers for the stock springs on Celica's weren't the same as the FX16 GTS. So I was just operating on the assumption, bigger cars, stiffer springs. So I went out and hacked apart some Celica GTS's, pulled their springs, cut like a coil off, and then swapped them over to the uh, FX's shock bodies and had some janky lowering springs. Um, there you go. They worked. They didn't make a lot of noise or anything. And uh, I used them in autocross. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I avoided some class changes because I mean, it's still like, it's all Toyota parts. Like it's all factory Toyota parts. I guess other than cutting a coil off, which I don't know if I announced or, I mean, I, I wasn't actually really competing against anyone. I was going to say, so. once, once you get into like the actual competing in SCCA stuff, if you win anything, they have the right to take it they after have, they impound your car and can take it apart. That's ridiculous. To investigate what parts you have to see if you are worthy of the victory. This is class. one of the reasons yeah, I, I never want to race competitively. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's cool, but also no. it's not no cool. No. On that note, just real quick aside, did anybody else watch the Canadian Grand Prix? I did today? not. Oh, okay. Well, as far as rules go, there was just a little bit of a... Vettel was assessed a five-second penalty for a move where he essentially got loose in a tiny little jink, um, cut across some grass because he sort of got loose in the car, straightened it out, cut across the grass, and then he got all regaining, regaining control, coming straight back onto the track and straightening it out. Hamilton tried to go around the outside of him, and Vettel kind of went all the way out ah. to the wall, and they gave him a five-second penalty yeah. for apparently running yeah. Hamilton wide. But Part of if their you saw set. the turn that it happened in, there was literally nothing else Vettel could do. It yeah. wasn't like he spun off track and then dangerously cut back onto the track in front of... It just was one of those things where it's like, man, racing is great, but yeah. when they have to interfere with rules of The rule, rules. like, for that specifically, they get really... Part of their rule set logic is race distance. So by cutting the corner, 
he shortened his that wasn't distance. in this case that wasn't at all what was factored in though it was the way that he re-entered oh. which was essentially just that he went straight across a very small this wasn't like a wide sweep out this was a tiny little jink like right left and he just came into the right got a little loose cut across the grass mm. and then just came right back onto the track and was trying to reestablish himself and then get going again. Mm -hmm. And Hamilton tried to shoot around the outside of him as that happened and had to check up. I don't know. It was just, I felt like there was literally nothing else Vettel could do, which was his argument. And, right. Um, and Hamilton didn't really say anything about it after the race. He was like, it was That's out of my hands. It wasn't my decision. So, mm -hmm. but he didn't say, yeah, that was dangerous for him to come back in front of me or anything. Like he just, I don't know. It's mm. racing. Yeah. Rules. I pay, I I, get I, it. I currently pay the $2 a month for the F1 streaming subscription thing. I I think I've used it once. Uh, I just it's It was not, on Fox Sports 1 today or some it was on some sports network that I get. It's on our hemisphere so it's at a reasonable hour. Yeah. Yeah, it was in the middle of the day today, and the NASCAR race was uh, rain delayed, mm -hmm. so I figured I would just sit and watch F1. Yeah. And um yeah, it just kind of a bother to watch the rules affect the outcome mm -hmm. you can stick that after the episode if you want that was just a total aside what else do i have any good diy stuff i don't know do you <laughs> i have um probably the one that i thought of before when you asked me about coming over to to do this was uh the dual throttle body setup on mm. the supercharger on my car which is a thing for those who aren't familiar um the common Miata packaging for supercharging, at least for a long time, was a quote-unquote hot side setup where the supercharger itself is mounted on a bracket sitting above the exhaust manifold, and then there's a crossover pipe from the supercharger outlet over to the stock intake manifold. So on most cars where you supercharge it, like the supercharger sits atop the intake manifold, particularly in V engines, yeah. because that's the perfect place to sit it, is just replace the intake manifold with a plenum that the supercharger sits on top of, shoves air through. Well, in a four-cylinder, you have to sit a sizable supercharger somewhere. Not just like in any, any other accessory. Yeah, so later on, it, it has become more common to have a cold-side supercharger setup where it, it does, you have a new intake manifold and it sits on the intake side of things. But things are pretty cramped under the Miata hood, so for years and years, they just park it above the exhaust manifold and then run a pipe from there over to the intake manifold. So that's the setup I have. The issue that you run into is that uh, the kit comes with a dummy throttle body that's just a plate with a blow-through pipe that just bolts on. You're supposed to take the intake, or the throttle body rather, off the intake manifold, put it on the supercharger inlet, and run the throttle cable over there so it regulates how much air enters the supercharger. Now you have a pipe that just goes out of the supercharger over to a, a hole straight into the intake manifold. So the problem you have then is that the idle air control valve was made to stay over on the intake manifold side of things on the bottom of this dummy throttle body. So when the throttle body slams shut on the supercharger inlet, you still have throttled volume from the supercharger through this pipe over to the intake manifold so the idle air control valve doesn't recover yet because there's still air coming through 
and then by the time the engine sucks all that air out and now there's very little airflow then the idle air control valve tries to duty cycle up and catch up and if it doesn't do it in time then the engine comes all the way down and stalls so you have a lot of idle stumbling and stalling issues because of this whole discrepancy in throttle volume so the workaround that a lot of people engineered just as a diy solution was two throttle bodies link them together with a cable now you've got one on the supercharger inlet and you've got one on the intake manifold and then you just run a second throttle cable between the two of them and link them together now they move simultaneously and you you can leave the idle air control valve where it is and have that throttle body also slam the shut one, the which one then, at the intake manifold yep and then the iac just recovers as it normally would because the throttle body is closing right there on the intake manifold so it's essentially treating it like stock again so for a while backing up just a little bit when i bought this kit it was technically for the nb miata 1.8 which uses a different idle air control valve setup. So the more dummy, electronics, less mechanical. Maybe it has something to do with the packaging or where it attaches. I forget what the exact difference is, but the, the bottom line is that the dummy throttle body that came with my kit would not really work in my system. I would have to move the idle air control valve and everything over to the supercharger inlet. And then that just doesn't run right. So for a while, what I did was left the idle air control valve and the throttle body and everything on the intake manifold and just put the dummy throttle body, which is basically a wide open pipe on the inlet of the supercharger, which meant it just screamed all mm. the time. Like there's nothing there to block the noise of it. Even sitting at idle, it's just oh. all the time. Mm. And that's three feet in front of your face. So while it worked and the car ran fine, it just drove me nuts. Race car. Well, yeah, you know, people people can say that as long as they want to, but when you start living with it all the time, when you yeah. drive it around, it's for the same reason you say the FX is not good to drive around on the street. Like, it's great when you get it to the track, but it's a race car. There is a point that you cross that threshold into. This thing is impractical to try to drive on the street anymore. That's where I want to be. <laughs> well, and when, when you there get soon. there, yeah. when you get there, let me know if you feel like turning around a little bit or oh, yeah. off of that, because your perspective does change. Like loud exhaust, there's certain things that you can kind of get by with, but that was just starting to drive me crazy. So I decided to go with this dual throttle body setup that a bunch of other people had used, and essentially everybody has gone about it in a slightly different way some people find weird ways to link a cable to the throttle like essentially you're on your own find a way to make a sleeved cable attached from this throttle body to that one good luck so bicycle uh, shop well motorcycle shop mm -hmm. is where i eventually went shout out to tom atkins sent me a link to a shapeways listing which for anyone who is or isn't familiar shapeways is like a uh, cad 3d printing uh 
service service but like a share open source sharing service so if you design something you can just upload it to shapeways and be like hey either download the file if you have your own 3d printer or you can order it through shapeways and one of their partners will 3d print the part and then ship it to you either way but it's open source so you can just if you have a 3d printer download the file and print it yourself um, so it's pretty neat somebody had made a throttle cable guide track for this specific purpose for dual <laughs> throttle bodies on a Miata a supercharged Miata and so I bought two of them uh, because it essentially just extends you know the little cable track that's on a throttle body you hook the barrel in one end and then there's a little groove mm -hmm. u-shaped groove that the cable lays in and and keeps it you know guided down the whatever down the little track yeah um so i bought two of these one for the stock throttle body because i was going to be adding a second cable to it and one for the other throttle body because i didn't know what angle the cable was going to enter that one from like it it winds up coming in from a different side than it normally would stock so i bought two of those had two throttle bodies and then just kind of bolted them together and looked at them and went, okay, what do I need? Measure the distance, figure out what length cable I need. I need the same barrels as come on a stock throttle cable. And then I went to a motorcycle shop and said, here's what I need. Here's the length of the sleeve I need. I want the little adjustable threaded ends on each side that you can double nut and slide them into a bracket and adjust the length and the pretension on it. And I need a cable this long inside of that with barrels on each end. And they actually had a place in Baltimore that makes them for them, even though they're based in Midlothian-ish, um, Departure Bike Works. And so they sent out to Baltimore, had these guys make the cables like three weeks or two and a half weeks or something, and finally came in. And then the process of actually building brackets to attach the cable to on each end to locate it was just some DIY, like bent up some sheet metal and slotted it and attached it to something nearby like that's about as build it yourself from start to finish as i've gotten um besides that it's just basic stuff like fabricating brackets to mount an intercooler you know mm -hmm. I, I added an air-to-air -air intercooler uh, mishimoto one that i bought from a friend of mine that's sort of a universal size but fit really well like packaging size it fits the the, um, the lower yeah the mouth on the miata perfectly um so i bought that from him and then just needed to fab some brackets to bolt it up to um i bought an ebay uh coupler and straight pipe intercooler build it yourself kit and just fabbed up intercooler piping essentially just with silicone couplers and cut mm -hmm. up different shape sections 180s and 90s and 45s and stuff to fit that um, haven't had a whole lot of other things, you know, most of it is buying parts that somebody else has figured out the solution for something that still takes some real DIY to put them in. But, um, you know, beyond just buying like factory Mazda parts or factory aftermarket parts, there are certain things where you buy this thing and then put it there and then make it work. Mm -hmm. But on that car, I haven't had to branch out too far. He said, the are pretty one. well covered by the aftermarket. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the big reasons. There's not a reasons. whole lot you can't buy. That's one of the big reasons that I got into them. It's short of Hondas. I mm -hmm. feel like Miatas are just about the best, like, 
aftermarket supported sports car that there is oh yeah and and mustang sure yeah but if you get back into at least 90s japanese cars 80s Mm -hmm. 90s like the aftermarket support and probably for s13s too at this point because they're so common for drift cars yeah for all the suspension it's it's a breeze getting that stuff like there's there's a million different like adjustable suspension options things where you like I've run into difficulties or like uh, everyone if you go on like a S13 form it's always just like SR20 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 like SR20 is like the answer to everything it's yeah. like oh I want to do more with this engine well you should put an SR20 in it well I, I want to stick with it but yeah but you should put an SR20 in it it's just like yeah you're not being helpful guys like so that's just tell me how to prevent rod knock in my ka and then let me go on about my own tasks i've I've never even heard that thing knock knock on wood then because they're known for it i don't know billy's throwing some g-forces through that thing that it's never been designed to see and it's still taking along just fine yeah for now 35 wheel yeah and more power to him. Most of the people I've known with KAs have, including a friend of mine who had a D21 hard body with a KA yeah. that just rod knocked itself to death. Like, it's just a thing I've heard. I don't know Nissan's up and down, but it is well, a thing that the I've other thing too is to be common. if it's a Mexican KA versus an American or uh, Japanese. Japanese KA. Oh, okay. So the 240s were all Japanese. Everything, the whole block and every, every the, that whole engine was made in Japan. The hard bodies and the KAs and the Altimas and everything else, those were all from Mexico. Built in Mexico. And they actually had less stuff in the block. I don't think they had the same oil squirters. Some of their cam durations were different, like... Probably simplified some things for, like, parts, supply chain. And those ones I've heard of having issued, like... uh, my coworker, his the Ultima one, always having problems. Always issues. But 240KAs... Unless someone's done something stupid or they've, you know, the, the other thing that I always see a lot of times on forums where someone's like, you know, they'll be bagging on some car be like, oh, it was junk because it did this to me. And like, you start asking the questions of like, well, what were you doing? How are you driving it? When was the we, last time yeah, you was, changed, changed the oil? The oil and it'll <laughs> yeah. be stuff like, you know, you see the, the pictures and they're like, See how jank these bearings are? This is trash, and like the oil is like jet black all around. It's, it's like, like what? Well, did you, yeah. did you change that like ever? Ever? Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, because you know I, I'd expect you know and the oil to be at least amber. That's not. the same thing I uh, experienced when I was looking into putting a one MZ in a mm. SW twenty. It's like oh one MZs they all sludge. They sludge really bad. If you bad. change the oil on time, it's fine. Uh, the the engine I pulled from a ninety six Avalon was like spotlessly mm-hmm. clean when I cracked the valve cover. It all depends like, on the previous owner. I guess, yeah, but that's just to your point. Like, if you maintain it at all, then some of these things, it's true, you can avoid yeah. a lot of what people say are common issues are only common for people who don't do any kind of maintenance. Yeah, that that whole, like, was it maintained question is, like, the biggest thing that you have to get past when you're reading. So, like, for all the Frankenstein stuff I do and all the DIY stuff I do, I spend probably two to three times more time if I'm doing something I'm going to, like, Frankenstein, some kind of project where I want to slap some stuff together and do something kind of wacky. I will spend two to three times more time and effort researching what I'm about to do than actually doing Doing the act. (laughs) Because I want to make sure all my part number cross-reference stuff is right. 
I want to make sure that I can have, you know, and you still run into, you know, you get into it and you're just like, well, I don't have still, anything I need. Yeah, you still run into conical sleeves for yeah. ball joints that <laughs> yeah. nobody told you about. Um, stuff like materials, like, uh, for instance, I mentioned in a previous podcast, uh, phenolic gaskets and, and switching to phenolics and like, you know, looking up the materials we used. And there were some people saying like the, um, the cutting board thing. Uh, and... I, I see validity in it, like, if, you know, if you get one of those thick white plastic cutting boards that, you know, you could, if you sat there with a razor blade long enough, you can score and do them and probably cut through it really clean. But I didn't want to go that route because cutting boards don't have, like, an MSD sheet kind of thing that's like, this is the ratings of, like, this cutting board can have a torch taken to it. Like, I don't know for sure the heat rating of whatever that material is. I don't know with absolute certainty what that board is actually made of. So I didn't even consider that route. I, I used, I did use cutting boards to make custom speaker brackets. Uh, That's a good idea. Yeah, that actually seems Because like it's like waterproof. Perfect application, and yeah. yeah. And yeah, they're cheap. You what know. are they, nylon or Delrin or? I don't know. That's the thing. I couldn't that's find any problem. consistency. <laughs> yeah, as well. That's yeah, why you didn't, uh, wouldn't use them as a phenolic spacer. Yeah, so I, I couldn't find a consistency there. But good news is the PTFE Teflon phenolic material that almost everyone makes their actual plasticky phenolic gaskets out of. You do not need much of that to get the gains, like at all. The ones they sell commercially are way overkill thick. Like. Half an inch, that's insane. You do not need that much. Yeah, like you were saying inch. yours are like 16 like or gasket, something, right? Yeah, gasket size. Yeah, yeah mine is gasket size. It came in, it rolled up in a tube. Um, and like, you know, you just I just traced it out and cut it with like an X-Acto knife. I didn't even like have to sit there like cutting at it. And that alone dropped temperature massively. And it, it I'm made, still, I'm glad you reminded me of that because I'm still really interested to try that between the supercharger and the little outlet manifold, which oh, would be yeah. like the perfect place for it. Because that little out, outlet manifold is cast aluminum. It's so it right should stay relatively cool exhaust. anyway. Yeah, and then the blower sits right over the exhaust. My exhaust is all wrapped to try to carry as much heat away as possible. Yeah. But still, like, that's the first link coming out of something fairly hot where you cool it down a fair amount there, then it goes through a sizable air-to-air -air intercooler, which I know is not the most efficient thing, it but it's, it's what I got, and I got it cheap. Quick question. Then, is it black or silver right now? What? The, the intercooler. intercooler. It's silver. Paint Spray black. paint it flat black. Mm -hmm. Okay. At idle, it it's at operating like air movement. It they operate the same, but when they're at idle, the black will shed heat much better than the shiny. Mighty Car Mods did a MythBusters type thing on it, and it totally works. But it looks so good. But that's cool. Yeah, that's very. Well, interesting. Then you can be more sleeper too. Yeah, yeah like no, yeah. that's true. Yeah. What's with this radiator? Oh. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> No, I already had people knocking me going, no, nah, go to go to meth injection. It's I picked up like 20 horse That's by so ditching. That's so much more complicated. Uh, it can be. You got to have a whole reservoir and a pump and an injector. Yeah. Yeah, but once you get that set up, like yeah, it's just I have a mega squirt already. I just see it as another thing to it. fail, like yeah. an, like an air Potentially. or air intercooler. You got to have that pump, and it's got to be full of antifreeze, and it's like. It's just, you have to bleed the air out of it. Just throw a nice air to air in there. And yeah, fine. it just, it isn't as efficient. Yeah. Like that is the truth in, mm -hmm. in these cases, at least, especially at low boost levels. Like as it is, I already see 
like a two psi uh, pressure drop across that intercooler like what my police set claims i should see at manifold pressure i'm two to two and a half psi low if you wanted to be super nerdy about it you could run temperature probes before and after and see how much of a temperature difference it's making yeah yeah i could i have an iat it's post intercooler because mm. obviously it's for speed density, I need to know what's actually going into the intake manifold. Mr. But Fancy Pants over I, here, I'm still running the flapper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I, well, it's mega squirt. I mean, mm. it just simplifies things like it's a plug and play ECU, and the only thing you need to run to it is a vacuum slash boost hose, mm -hmm. and then plug it in and start tuning and then yeah and intake air temp which actually the way that the plug-and-play one works for the miata it pulls from two of the factory um mass airflow sensor wires it reuses the signal from two of those wires to run the intake air temp hmm. so you just throw like a an ebay gm intake air temp sensor in there and then just run the two wires you don't even have to run them all the way to the ecu you just run them back to the harness where the mass airflow sensor used to be nice and wire them in and off you go the like, mega squirt plug and play for the ka is the same they they tell you to use a gm yep yeah, that's the, the that's the really common cheap off the, i think mine was like nine dollars or something yeah they're cheap but i think i may I, i'm trying to remember now if i bought one that came with a little bung or not i may have just bought one by itself and then gone to the hardware store and found a pipe fitting that's the correct thread and then just drilled a hole in my intercooler piping and threaded this little pipe fitting uh what would you call that not a nipple a but yeah a bum essentially into that yep with teflon tape and then through the intake and in there and yeah i as far as i know i don't lose boost out of there so well, that's the whole that's the whole point of this episode is that if it works yeah pretty much <laughs> uh i guess the one other one that i thought of that we were talking about a little bit before we started rolling before is, we roll yes anybody else want another beer i do oh, actually oh. i'd go for a second one and then i'll talk about my coney oh that is really interesting golden lager with natural pear flavor it tastes like what does it taste like pears mm -mm. that's the weird thing it tastes like um bold rock or something it tastes almost like a cider mm. interesting it's that like tangy sweet fruit flavor mm. huh. yeah it does taste like pear you're right <laughs> i admit it it's pears you're listening to the dulcet tones of beer and backfire. Gotta <laughs> get some saxophone in here. Oh boy, you're right. These are these are some hard chairs. Yeah. All right. I'll figure out a better solution at some point. So I guess the other, uh, the one other sort of DIY, I wound up uh, DI friending it. I was telling Jake a little bit about it before, but when I had my last, my budget coilover set up on the Miata before I put fortunes on it. Which I had the same setup as you have, which is Coney Yellows, ground control sleeves, and Eibach springs, um, which you're running on the coil FX. Eibach coilover springs. Yeah, and um, when I bought the parts, I bought them like piecemeal from three different people. So I bought the Coney Yellows local from somebody for like 180 bucks, which was like the greatest deal of the century, or maybe 120. I that's forget. That's about what they go for each new. Yeah, 
at least mm -hmm. at least for Miatas I think they're a little more they're like I think it's 160 for a Martinez yeah. yeah they're closer to 200 I want to say but anyway for the whole set none of them seemed to leak they had a little bit of surface rust and stuff but really not bad at all so I bought those and then I bought the ground control sleeves and the Eibach springs came as a, an entire setup for the Miata and I bought them from somebody else who was running them on a Miata with conies so he ships the whole thing to me I open the box and I pull the sleeves out and I've got the conies already and the sleeves are about three inch ID and the conies are like two inch OD mm. and the sleeves just all over them well they just there's nothing there's literally nothing for them to even sit on oh. so my first thought was the conies come with a big spring perch for like a full-size miata spring which is three and a half four inch diameter maybe so it's got this big four inch diameter cup lower spring perch that slots down over or slides down over the shock body and sits on a tiny little circlip in a groove. So I thought, well, I could sit the lower spring perches on here and then sit the sleeves on them, but there's nothing to stop them just slopping back and forth around the shock body all the time. When you buy those new from ground control, they, they come, come with little, with little donuts. donuts. Well, this is what I was getting to. Yeah. So because I bought them secondhand. I think they're supposed to be Delrin actually or something like pretty hard. Uh, for MR2s it's like rubber. It's just like giant rubber O-rings that you just kind of like scooch down around it and hmm. keeps it from rattling around. Well the me uh, at least from what I looked up after the fact when I was trying to figure out this discrepancy between the two is that the Miata ones are supposed to come with these little Delrin spacers. adapter spacers that would sit on the circlip on the shock body and then the sleeve just sits on that oh. down to the little there's a notch in the bottom edge of the sleeve that would sit on that and so you just have this little delrin donut that sits on there so lacking those i needed a solution so i talked to two friends who worked in machine shops at the time and said could you machine me probably aluminum because it should be fine for this it doesn't really it doesn't bear it doesn't bear any more load than that tiny little circlip does by mm. itself and if that thing can bear the load of the weight of the car because it's in it's not in double shear like it's in single shear. it still astonishes me that those lower spring perches sit on this tiny that little kind of circlip amazing. i didn't know that that i mean it bears the weight of that corner of the car mm -hmm. on that little steel clip but it works hey. so i figured if you're gonna put a donut that's you know a quarter inch thick in both directions on there, aluminum should be fine. Mm -hmm. So I had a friend of mine who worked at a machine shop just turn me out four of these on a lathe. I brought him one shock body and I brought him one sleeve and had him take precise measurements with calipers of the inside and outside diameters and then just machine me four little uh, spacers and hmm. they worked great. Um, for the whole time that I ran those, which was probably for a year and a half, and then I sold them to a guy with an NB who was trying to do the same thing, like pretty budget coilover setup. I think by the time I was done, even with those little spacers and things, I only had like $600 into that whole setup, and that was with NB top hats, which... Um, has a deeper... Yep, for non-Miata people, they're, the top hats themselves are taller, which means you gain about three quarters of an inch of... Shock travel. Either shock travel or lowered ride height. So mm -hmm. if, you, if all you do is swap to those with like some Coney shocks, you get three quarters of an inch of 
lowered ride height without changing anything else. If you have threaded sleeves like the ground controls like I had, now you have three quarters of an inch of extra shock travel and then you still adjust your ride height at the, at the lower spring perch. spring perch on the sleeve. So I put NB top hats on all four. I bought brand new upper bushing kits, uh, brand new bump stops, all this stuff and had like 600, 650 into this coilover setup and it, it worked pretty darn well for a DIY like assemble from parts setup until I bought the fortunes. And as far as I know, the guy that I sold them to is still running them. On it's a, it's not a bad setup. I mean, like speaking from MR2 stuff, mm -hmm. uh, specifically first gen MR2 stuff, conies and ground control type things are still the way to go for track performance. Like, you can get BC coilovers and stuff like that, but, like, and those are probably decent for the street, but, like, guys that are actually out there, like, winning autocross yeah. stuff, you need the you need the conies and yep. the... Well, and from a lot of what I read, apparently the real way to go is Bilstein HDs mm. on Miatas. Mm. This is what a lot of spec guys run, is Bilstein HD kind of DIY coils with aftermarket springs, because I guess the packaging... I may have this wrong as far as spec, but certain classes, rather, it may not be a spec thing, um, but certain sanctioning classes will allow the Bilstein HDs because they're the same packaging as stock shocks. Are they um, externally adjustable? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I know the Coney's are. I forget if the Bilsteins are. But anyway, I the Bilsteins. That's why the set guys run the Bilsteins is because they're not externally adjusted. I think, so I think, think that might be right. That's the way it is. I think that might be right. Um, but those and the Eibach, and the that's what a lot of people run. The Coney's are sort of the one step down as far as Miatas go mm -hmm. for that. Um, for me, I don't know if it was just my personal setup. I don't know if I was just running them at a lower ride height than most people i could never seem to dial the damping in to where i liked it on the street it seemed way too bouncy it would tend to really um well, compression yeah. would load up really hard so if you hit like a bridge joint or something it would load up really hard and then rebound really hard so you would hit a bridge joint everything would compress and then the car would like pop out Ooh. and feel like I mean obviously it didn't go airborne but it felt like it completely unloaded the suspension hmm. when you go over something like that it wouldn't just soak it up and then flatten back out interesting and that's at least on the street I'm sure they were probably better geared toward a track setup where you could firm them up you're not going over that kind well, even, of a joint even on or the Coney, the Coney Yellow's adjustment is only rebound there's no compression adjustment yeah I, that's the other thing I learned was I knew it was only it was one or the other and I couldn't remember which but yeah, that's what I was going to bring up the, the uh, I remember when I was looking at trying to since the Corolla there's no options for aftermarket suspension like the coils or anything I had been looking at those other things and those piece it together kind of deals and that was the big the big thing was that you can only adjust one direction one or the other yeah which honestly unless you're building a full-on like wheel-to-wheel -wheel race car you don't really need yeah well and if the whatever if the compression <laughs> valving is paired fairly well to the spring rates that you put on it i'm sure that's fine but it's when you get into that territory of wondering and i tried to follow I don't do as meticulous research as you do. I just kind of don't have time for it, I guess, is a big part of it. 
But um, having to kill I it, that was definitely a known setup. Coney's iBox, these iBox Sports Springs, like that was why I was buying this setup. Maybe I would have been happier with the Bilsteins. It just for a car that's dual duty, I drive it a fair amount on the street. I know Garrett when, when it's he not broken. when he had yeah. his, it was he did a similar setup, but instead mm-hmm. of using the adjustable Coney's, he went with the Coney oranges, which yeah, are like the, the more luxury or whatever. Yep. The more luxury setup. Yeah, and see, and I drove, could see those. It drove being... okay. Like, I drove his car, and it was, like, one of the most fun, in terms of feedback, cars I've ever driven. Because yeah, he had, like, the that... factory manual rack and everything. It was rad. It does that happy little Miata dance where there's some body roll, but it doesn't feel like a boat. Like, yeah, but it's I... just enough feedback to know what the car is doing. Yeah, you but I, I still maintain that car would have been better with something more hardcore for the shock. Probably. Probably. I just... For whatever reason, I could never get those conies to pair exactly. I feel like my fortunes, in a way, are similar, but they're better. Like, I'm making steps in the right direction. I think the guy that I bought the fortunes from oversprung them for a set of 500s. They're 10K front and 8K rear. Oh, my God. That, which is a lot of spring weird. for a light car. For a car, double like wishbone car, you don't need suspension that stiff. Yeah, yeah. and Because you want to let the double wishbones do their thing. Yeah. So what I've what I've thought about is among several steps toward the end goal, but probably moving the eight Ks from the rear to the front, and then putting either six or fives on the mm-hmm. rear, um, and then seeing if the valving in the five hundreds, or go to the five ten valving because I can have them internally revalved, and then. From talking to Terry, the owner of Fortune, he said the 510s, the adjustment range is such that you can essentially crank them. The further you get toward firm, you wind up almost adding artificial spring rate to them. So then you really can run a lower static spring rate on the street, dial them back and have really comfortable characteristics on the street. And then when you go to the track, actually crank them up to where the valving of the shock is almost adding a small amount of extra additional artificial spring rate to where so you don't have, have to run as high rate springs to still get the same behavior. So basically they've, they've calculated in, so it's one adjustment, but that adjustment is incrementally changing both compression and rebound together. Correct. Not and that's how rebound. even the 500s work, mm. to my understanding. That's nice. Is that they do adjust both compression and rebound kind of symmetrically up or down. What he told me is that the 500s are kind of built to be semi-foolproof. Mm. Essentially, if you crank them full firm, you're not going to break anything internally in the shock. You crank them full soft, you're not going to... Like, the car might not ride great, but the adjustment range is yay big for those listening in audio. I'm indicating about a foot. Yeah. Um, for the 510 valving, it is yay big, like three feet. You now have the ability to adjust way down to the bottom end where you could be slam and bump stops all the time or way up to the top end where the shock is taking too much lo- or whatever but that you're given a way wider adjustment range within that so that if you know something about it 
essentially you're almost always going to fall somewhere in between, but you really have the adjustability to tune what the car is doing street versus track versus autocross for, you know, so, um, revalving to five tens might be kind of the end game, but the medium plan is probably to move the eight K springs to the front and then go down to six or five and soften rear. up a little bit yeah and as it is apparently my front rear split is a little closer than i would ideally like 10 to 8 like 10 and 7 would give me the option to tune the rear with sway bar At least right now i'm running reference. yeah right now i'm running no rear sway because it's a little oversprung in the back so yeah apparently the split front and rear is a little tight the way it is so i run no rear sway if i ran even the stock rear sway it would be a little too stiff in the back and probably tend pretty heavily toward oversteer i was gonna say so. if you wanted point of reference the 240 they the ones they just built for me for autocross street it's eight and six so yeah <laughs> i would say the miata being a one eight instead of a two four and yeah does anybody know what that roughly translates to in pounds? Um, I can pull it up. It's... I don't want to speak out of school. I know I've looked it up before. I'm trying to remember. Because I'm running on... I didn't know what, how to set up the Corolla, so I just basically made it a backwards MR2 setup. Yeah. And I'm running 450 in the front, 350 in the rear. I think the rear is... 450 is 8K, 350 is 6.2. I'm running... Or 6,200. I'm running way too much rear spring. But it feels good on track. I can lift off oversteer as I please. Yeah, so 10K is 560, and 8 is 448 that bar pounds per inch. So yeah, and my, my Coney and Eibach setup, I think, was 375 front and 250 rear pound. So that was essentially like 6.5 and 4.5 was yeah. the spring rates I was running before, and now I'm 10 and 8. Yeah. So it was a huge jump. I th the valving does what it can to control that, but it's a little heavy for what the car is, and not just being like a dedicated track car mm -hmm. where you're trying to just, I guess, control as much suspension yeah. movement as possible and keep the car super flat in corners. And, and I know with as a general rule, on a McPherson strut car, you want a stiffer setup than you would on like a a good double wishbone or multi-link setup because the McPherson strut, you basically set it alignment and suspension tuning to exactly the optimum and leave it exactly there. Whereas with a double wishbone, it's like you can let the suspension move and mm -hmm. do a good job because the McPherson strut has a pretty poor like geometry to yep. it. Yep, again, like the way that it changes geometry through the suspension travel is much less... That's much more calculated into a double wishbone setup yeah, you where you're, they determine that they want camber to increase X amount per suspension travel mm -hmm. in a double wishbone car so that as it compresses, they know how much more camber you're going to get, say, on the outside during a turn than on the inside. Then you get into tow out on turns and all kinds of fascinating. Yeah, MR, that's an MR. That's a second gen MR2 quandary right there. Yeah, tow out. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's what gets you your snap, snap. oversteer. Yeah. Um, 
that's a reputation. That's a, not a great way to. No, say having those having those short rear toe links. Like if you just look at the suspension geometry in the rear and just imagine it as it travels, you're like, oh yeah, those short toe links pull the back end of the knuckle in as the suspension compresses. We're on which. Yeah, on the rear, which tows the rear tires out so if you're significantly. Doing, if you're doing autocross, that's a desirable thing. But yeah, if you're on a road course, great. not so much. Yeah, and I've been I've been in a second gen with the earlier rear subframe out at VIR, and it didn't seem that bad to me. You just me. have to be mindful. The of driver it. was obviously like attuned to the car and what it does, and was perfectly capable of. Uh, managing it but that is one reason that I'm glad that my JDM 92 is essentially a USDM 93 and has the later rear subframe it's just it's more stable not a thing that I have to swap out it's inherently more stable and Mm -hmm. I can probably throw more at it without poor characteristics yeah less risk of bending the car into a wall Mm -hmm. I would hate to do that yeah yeah, let me see. I've got a whole list of stuff here I could bore everybody with. But... Do it. Oh, God. Bore me with another you one. You don't want me to do that. Um, You've talked about the Cressida so my, stuff. My, that, that whole You've car, I used to have a... I've talked about it in like the first episode, but I used to have an 86 Cressida station wagon, which, unlike the Cressida sedan, has a solid rear axle instead of independent. So trying to like use general Cressida coilovers and stuff for that don't really work. So you have to kind of figure out, cause it's basically a, a second gen Celica Supra in the front for suspension and then original first gen Celica Supra in the rear, hmm. essentially. So I have that car talking to you had DIY stuff and Frankensteining stuff from other cars. We had on that car, there was the clutch pedal cause I swapped it from automatic to a manual. Okay. Um, because all the wagons were automatics, unfortunately. Um, to do the swap, I had to use an AE86 clutch pedal, which bolted in, which was pretty cool. Um, a Mark III Supra non-turbo transmission, which bolted in like factory. So, real quick about the clutch pedal. They punched out the firewall the same for the wagon as they did for the... St- okay. Yeah, the only, the, the only block-off plate was like a little rubber section in like the floor mat or the carpeting. Yeah. That you could literally just poke it and it would, the little hole would fall out. Nice. So I just put in a uh, Mark II Celica Supra clutch master cylinder from Rock Auto and ran a braided steel clutch line. Yeah. And it worked great. I will say, in my experience... Back in the day, Toyota did a lot with making it so the upper trims, literally it was just stuff that they could just slap in. They still so, do that. Oh, they still do that? Like yeah. for, for like where newer... The harnesses like, are still there for yeah. everything? Okay. Yeah. Like Yaris's and stuff where if you where they don't come with intermittent windshield wipers or like adjustable speed windshield wipers, all you need to do is swap in that the stock yeah. from another car and it's exactly the same yeah. wow so yeah they'll, they'll do that too where you like you'll open up the door panel and it'll be crank windows but the plug for all the electrics is right there and literally oh. all you have to do is just the car in it and plug it and then for it. yeah so wow. and honda did that too back in the day i remember my dad bought the um the 81 civic and he was like oh i want cruise control and they're like oh it's gonna be this much money and they started looking at the diagrams and he's like um 
I don't want. Uh, I'll take it without cruise control. <laughs> and then he like he buys the card. He just goes over to the parts department. He goes, "I'd like that switch, please." <laughs> and then he went. That was literally it. And then he had cruise control. That's ridiculous, <laughs> but really cool. So yeah, the the manual swap was just an A eighty six clutch pedal and super parts for everything else, and hmm. all bolted in perfectly. The rear end was a little more complicated. In that way, the Cressida in general was sort of a bastard child of like 8 it's, million other Toyota cars. Well, right? the Cressida like, sedan is almost identical in terms of suspension and drivetrain to a second gen Celica Supra. It's exactly huh. the same. They just, just put the four, four doors. doors and a boxy sedan body on it. Huh. Toyota does that. Um, and the, the last gen Cressida was a... Ba- it's a little different, but it was close to a third-gen Supra underneath. Huh. The front suspension was an older design, but the rear suspension was more or less the same as the Supra. Let me see here. The The rear axle was the same as, like, a like a Celica of the time. So it was, like, that weird, like, 7.1-inch diff that you can't get any cool parts for. So I swapped in a rear axle assembly from a set 79 Celica Supra that I found in a junkyard in Pennsylvania and put in a Did you mark- drive all the way to Pennsylvania to get it? I was already, I, I, I called ahead and was like, I'm gonna be there in a month. Can you save me this part? And they did. Nice. Cause I, I already had other stuff going on up there. Yeah. But um, yeah, I picked that up and it's a seven and a half inch diff. So you can swap in stuff from Forerunners and trucks and the second gen Celica Supra, the actual diff itself is the same, even though the housing, cause it's IRS versus solid, mm-hmm. the actual, Differential itself, yeah, will, ring will go and in. pinion and all that. Yep. Just... So I put in a used but rebuilt second gen Celica Supra diff into the Mark One solid axle. Is housing. that like removable third member? It's a whole style. The, the pig note, pig like yeah, 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 yeah. Thing. yeah, yeah third, third member, third member. It's a pain in the ass. Gotcha. But like the the cool. actual axle and pumpkin case, and that's just one molded piece, uh-huh. and then the whole thing yeah, bolts no to the front cover. of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pierce is here. Oh, nice. The first time. <laughs> what are you drinking, Pierce? It's a cannon draw hop. Hop. It's, it's just called, called hop. hop. It's literally okay. just. It's super tasty. Is it a hazy IPA? Guest right. host. Last time I, I actually, saw you was on the side of the road. Oh, that's that's a true fact. So I got it home and got it unloaded, and the next day I found out. Ben that, got it. Home. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, huge shout out to that guy, Ben um, Young. I asked him to be my friend on Facebook, and he hasn't accepted yet, so he might be mad at me. No, he's a super (laughs) introvert, so that'll be a big part of it. Um, No, he's a really good dude. He's Yeah, he was super cool. We had a great conversation on the hour and a half ride home. Oof. Um, I know. Okay, so then like 30 minutes into the drive, though, he was like, oh, my e-brake's been on the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I was like, oh, is that what that smell is? I thought you just Anyways, hair on the manifold for um, me. So we got it, uh, got it home, and the next day I isolated it down to the igniter, which is like, um, it's basically the. It's a trigger. Like, it's for a trigger. Oil, right? right. It's exactly. like a re- like it's, di- it's what separate. a relay is for most things. It's a low voltage trigger right. for a high voltage. It, it reads. It, it reads basically a trigger signal off of the distributor rotor. And There's usually a separate little thing inside the distributor that actually has picked Well, up. both the coil and the igniter are inside the distributor on this specific car. Oh. Weird. Some Hondas have the coil on the outside of the distributor. They are much better. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're much more durable and long-lasting. That makes sense. Anyways, so 
I, I did isolate it down to the igniter. I replaced the igniter and it ran great for about half a day. Like literally later that day, I went to drive it again to my second job and it started misfiring and coughing and stuff. And um, I didn't, I, I literally just parked it again and drove the Suzuki Swift and I've been driving the Swift all week. I haven't Do bothered you, to try to figure out what's is, wrong with it. Is there point. any chance that the bum igniter did something to burn out the coil? I think, no, because I did, Next, um, or is I there did like put a in, cascade effect? No, not really. Not, well, first of all, no, that usually doesn't happen. But second of all, I did also put in a known good test coil first gotcha. because that is much easier to replace than the igniter. And that didn't fix it. Exactly. So the igniter is good and the coil is good. I know for a fact, both of those things are good. However, when it did start misfiring, as I was trying to leave, I did not have time to try to figure it out at that point. So I just hopped in the Suzuki and I drove to my second job and I haven't tried to figure it out since. I think that probably I just left like a spark plug cable loose gotcha. when I pulled the distributor cap off. I'm hoping that's all it is. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm probably gonna have to do like a whole tune up and it needs a timing belt. It's needed a timing belt for like 10,000 miles and I just don't have the money or the time to try to spend on it, yeah. on that car, you know, because I've been blowing everything on the RX-7. <laughs> jump time? No, I didn't, definitely didn't jump time, no. I feel like I mean, that's if, an interference engine though, the, right? Oh yeah. Replacing oh. the igniter and stuff. Replace that, that timing belt under the cap? I know, I need, I, what's that? Is it under the distributor cap? Yes, or? yeah, the distributor cap has to come off the rotor, uh, the rotor itself has to come off, and then there's like a cover, a plastic cover that goes under the rotor that covers the coil and the igniter. So, how did you set timing when you put it all back together? The um, so the rotor actually is only able to go on one way. Sure, but it's then the, is the cap rotates to adjust no, it timing. No, no. So the distributor itself doesn't come out. Okay, but it's also only. He didn't loosen the whole way. distributor. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, it's been a minute since I've worked on distributors. Right. So, so asking dumb questions. But. The distributor itself is held on to the engine block. It's like a big tall. Sure. That's like, the part that actually you yeah that you turn right. Yeah, yeah. and, and that's that I didn't touch any. Yeah, you're right. You I didn't touch any of that stuff. Took yep. the cap off. Right. Took the stuff off. Slide it um, on. I did also. None of the timing should have changed. Exactly. It's just as long as the plug wires are on there good and working right. I wonder if, like, if the cap and rotor had, like, you know, worn together over a certain amount of time, maybe it threw something off yeah. and took it apart. Just well, that's what, um, when I pulled the distributor cap off, one of the bolts was actually missing. So, it's like a little tiny 8mm head mm -hmm. um, bolt that holds, there are three of them that hold the cap on. The distributor, like, yeah, yeah, the actual cap where the plug cables go in. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if like maybe that just created just enough of an angle that the rotor wore into the eh. thing. I mean, but it shouldn't have, it shouldn't make a difference like Stuff this. Stuff gets but, in there. But it was wet and like I just had all the cables loose and like, I don't know, things, I don't know, whatever. I was in a hurry. I haven't looked at it. I and you. whatever. So, well, I'll figure it out. It won't be a problem, I'm sure, but... The Suzuki sounds like it's running pretty good. The Suzuki runs like shit. What are you talking about? It died like three times when I was talking to you last night. It didn't sound like it. It sounded like it was just sitting there idling. From what I could tell. No, I don't know. It. Um, the Suzuki has... I, I honestly don't know what's wrong with it. Uh, it will just cut off randomly. I've replaced the idler control valve. I've replaced the throttle position sensor. I've replaced... What else have I replaced? Several other things that I got on eBay for a couple of replaced. dollars. So maybe that's a shorter list. Um, I mean everything else. Oh, okay. Fuel <laughs> pressure. Uh, I don't think it's fuel pressure related because it does when it runs good, it runs great. Is there a vacuum leak? Maybe. I don't think so. 
There's not actually any vacuum hoses on that car. So that car actually has an absolute pressure sensor instead of a mass airflow sensor. Nice. Hmm. Of all the vehicles, so turbo. I own. I know. <laughs> I own like three other, or like well, seven other way cooler cars that all have flap doors or some other just, ancient just technology. Just because it has a map sensor doesn't mean it knows what to do when the pressure no, but it means that it's atmosphere. But it means that it's better off yes. to begin with yes. than all of the other cars that I own. It yes. probably uses that same GM sensor that we keep talking about. It is about. the GM sensor. <laughs> as a matter of fact, that everyone uses because, for because it's, it is literally a Geo Metro, mm -hmm. which at this point is a 2001, was made by GM. Yep. So this my, that Suzuki Swift was actually built in North America. Mm -hmm. So is my Corolla. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it knew me. Um, but I, I did think on the way over here of like we were talking about, you're trying to talk about jerry rigging stuff. Mm hmm. And I remembered that, like, literally everything on the Civic that I had was held together with, like, twine and copper fittings. And at one point, the the fuel line rusted through because on the – it's an 88 Honda Civic. And for whatever reason, they decided that after the fuel – the fuel line leaves the fuel tank and then they sent it through into the body, inside the chassis. And then the fuel line runs – down past your foot, up past the pedals, and through the firewall again to the engine. Great. Yeah, on the inside of the car, yeah. for whatever reason. No, that's very safe. Let's protect it. So one time, when I was driving to work in Charlottesville, the car died from maintenance. And uh, I was able to get it restarted and drive it to work the rest of the way. And then on the way home that night, it died like three more times on the highway. So once I got it home, I realized that like the interior smelled a lot like fuel, like more so than usual, because it was a piece of shit car and it just kind of always smelled like fuel anyways. Is that an Allagash Curio? It's a New Belgium. Oh, triple. That looks exactly like the label for the Allagash Curio. Anyways. It smelled like fuel. Yeah. It smelled, it smelled like, like fuel. So uh, I, ba I basically fixed, it had rusted through um, right after where it passes through under the rear seat. Um, where the little rubber grommet was, um, it had, I don't know, something had built up there and it had rusted through and was leaking fuel into the interior and like the carpet was soaked. That's so I ripped safe. all the carpet out. Yeah, I know, that's what I'm saying. Like, why would you run a fuel line inside the car anyways to begin with? So I ripped all the carpet out, threw it all away and replaced that portion, like three inches of line with a copper, um, just crush fitting deal from like advance that I got for like two bucks. And then at some point the muffler fell off. So I welded like a six inch section of pipe to the exhaust and cut a hole in the bumper for it to come through. Um, and then I miss this car so I'm much. Telling you, I, uh, I had, uh, I mean, there was at least one lug nut missing from every wheel on the car. There was only four to begin with. I know. Yeah. So, I, listen, I drove the MR2 all the way to VIR and back with 19 out of 20, but no, that didn't... I'm telling you, I was missing sketchy. I was missing at least six lug nuts off of this Honda Civic. And so, to, get it, to get it to pass 16. inspection, I literally, like, JD welded some lug nuts <laughs> to, like, the wheel. I'm glad my... That's <laughs> that is horrifying. You better hope that. that so I'm guessing they didn't pull the no. wheel to check the brakes. Oh god, no. Like, no, no. <laughs> because I mean, the, well, the fronts were discs, so you can kind of check those from the inside, and the rears were uh, drums, so you literally just pull like the rubber um, sight, whatever, cover, yeah, the inspection yeah. cover off to look at those. Mm -hmm. 
And then because it had a, a newer engine swapped into it, it was too tall for the hood. So frequently, like immediately after I bought it, it had issues where it was, the throttle cable was literally getting pinched between the valve cover and the hood. And it would stick open, nice. the throttle would, the throttle cable would stick. So I just like skinned the throttle cable off of like the rubber, all the rubber off of the throttle cable, and that worked fine. I ended up having to like chisel a little. Not raise the hood with washers. No, yeah, you just skin the cable. Free shit, bro. Washers cost money. Free shit, bro. I did end up like chiseling a little notch in the valve cover too, where the cable ran, just to get it to even be even a little bit shorter. Oh my god. And then once, and then, and of course, I wrecked it three times, and so I fixed it the first time. I spent a lot of money fixing it the first time and then I wrecked it again and again and it was like well all right forget about it <laughs> so uh by the time that I ended up selling that car the hood was being held shut with speaker cable it was like this yeah and then the license plate the, was just riveted the to that hood, vertical section the hood was the hood was so vertical by the time that I sold it that I was literally able to rivet the license plate to the hood and it was still visible from the front like perfectly completely visible from like like a cop sitting on so, the side of the road. The, so. the thing about this story that, that baffles me the most is that it ends with, I sold it. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I mean, I traded it, but uh, okay. for a better vehicle, I was honestly. Like, I was like, who bought this? No, yeah. I, so I was in advanced auto parts looking for a better... Oh, what, what was I doing? I actually don't even know what I was in advanced auto parts for. But Just Post Malone over here. I know. Uh but there was so there was like an Audi wagon in the parking lot picture. right in front of the advance and I go into the advance and there's nobody in the store no customers it's late so I go to the guy at the counter and I was like yo who owns that Audi outside and he was like oh I do actually and I was like yo I think it's sick it was a it was a 19 what, what year was that car I, I want to say it was a 90 Audi 200 Avant Turbo Quattro Five speed. Wait, is this the one that you like turned like uh, coated with? Uh... I didn't coat it with Rhino Liner. It was already coated with Rhino Liner. Oh my god! Like when I showed up to the advance, it people. already had Rhino Liner on it. These your people. Yeah, Sorry. exactly. Yeah. So I was like, "Who owns that Audi wagon outside?" And the guy behind the counter was like, "Oh, it's mine." And I was like, "Dude, that thing is sick." He was like, "Yeah, I've actually been trying to sell it." And I was like, "Oh, would you consider trading it?" And he was like, "Well, I mean, I guess. What have you got for trade?" I was like, well, I've got this like 88 Honda Civic. It's not running right now, but would you be interested in that? And like from like half a mile back behind the counter, right where the, where the shelves end, some chick like pokes her head out from behind the shelves and she's like, hell yeah, I'll trade it for a Civic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she was apparently his fiance. Uh, <laughs> the one who makes the real Exactly. Yeah. The executive. So that's how I picked up the 200 and simultaneously dump, was able to dump the Honda Civic. I don't, I don't know who yeah. got like a white Yeah. Um, like who lost there? Uh, definitely not me. Yeah. Because I did end up selling the 200 for a decent amount of money well, uh, when I got rid yeah. of it. So. Have you ever, Pierce, have you ever done anything DIY that wasn't just a very sketchy temporary solution? They're not no, because all of them. Well, okay. no, no, but literally every 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 DIY solution They're that I come up with are all meant to be temporary. Right, because and then you I don't ride on for them. years. You rarely keep cars exactly. unless it's the RX-7. I'm trying to think of like, because like, with Did the RX-7. make a mod yourself? Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. I know, I mean, not really. a thing um, or welded something together that... I welded the exhaust on the RX-7, but only because it was... 
mostly welded to begin with. But I, I honestly, no, I mean, most of the stuff that I've had, I've been able to get parts for pretty cheap. So I usually just buy stuff. Yeah. The Civic was, I mean, it was a pile to begin with. So I, I, was I honestly, say, dude, I never, I didn't. Parts are cheap for anything. Yeah. It's for Civics. I didn't care about the Civic at all until after it was gone. And then I missed it a bunch. Yeah. And I still do, honestly. My dad had a 90 Civic mm -hmm. from 1990 till 2000. He had it for 10 years. That was like solid formative years of my life. That was his daily driver. And um, had the automatic shoulder belts and oh all that. God. Yeah. Early so 90s nonsense. They, yeah. They went, so mine was the 88, so it didn't have the automatic yeah, that was They traded that. They changed that in 89 or 90 or something gotcha, like that. Yeah. 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 But those, I mean, just that era of Hondas is... You miss them when they're gone. My very first car was a 90 Accord sedan, um, five-speed. Audi Chenery's first autocross car, the little red Civic, mm -hmm. that was a 90. Oh. Uh, it was an EF hatchback, just like mine. The one that Except, Jeff used to race all the time. Her and Jeff both raced it. I thought that was an 87. No, no, 87 was the previous body style. Um, Jeff? Jeff Chenery? Didn't he have Her an EG Civic? They both raced a little red hatchback for a while. Okay. An older one. Yeah, I mean, that the was... kind of more boxy-ish one. Yeah, yeah, like mine. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought, I'm sorry, for some reason I thought he had an EG Civic. I don't think so. Okay. There was a kid named Justin. Justin had, had the blue one with the black fender. Oh, yeah, that's that, what I'm thinking that of. That thing was stupid. That yeah. thing was super fast. Because he also drove that Caprice wagon out one time. Now right? he's got the, what is it, the Passockster Pasa uh, Lemons car, where it's half of a Passat. Half Poor Sasha, that's what it is. It's that's half a Porsche, car. half a, a Passat, and then Lemons race it, and it's yep. awesome. Wow. All right. Wait, is that like the, the FX R2 or whatever? Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, the MR16. Yeah. Isn't, isn't <laughs> that it the amazing. half of both, though, or no? The Porsche. No, it's the rear. I think it's the rear okay. half of a Porsche with the front half of a Passat. Gotcha. Have, have you seen the, the MR16 or the yeah. FX? The, there's, so. a, there's a lemon seam. It's the, their, their livery is a double mint gum livery, but it's the front end of an FX16 with, or... No, no, it's, no, it's, it's all it's, MR2. But it's no, MR2. no, no. It's, it's, it's an 18... Okay, the, they had two of them. They had the 1892 and an MR2, and they had an FX16 and an MR2. Oh. And they one, so, of, one of the engines has an automatic transmission. Yeah, it's, it's, so literally, it's there's the front. There's a four AGE in the front and a four AGE in the back. And the one in the front is driven by an automatic transmission, and the one in the rear is driven by a manual transmission. They they share a throttle cable, a throttle pedal. Yeah. The so, <laughs> so it's yeah. It's they, a four it's wheel, double. It's a double engine drive. Four wheel drive. But it's so cool and it does so good. Yeah. It's like it's like the living embodiment of what we're talking about that on is, this. Yeah, episode. that is incredible. It's it's dumb. But did I love you guys it. see the AMC Pacer Fishbowl? Yes. yes. Oh yes. my god. <laughs> That's amazing. It's so good. What what is the car inside of that? I don't. I think it's a Pacer. Is it? No, is because it the windshield frame and stuff reminded me heavily of something I couldn't place it. I thought, I thought it was I thought something it was two Pacer rear ends. No, yeah, they, that was a Porsche. That's what the fishbowl is, but I thought it was like a 944. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought it was. I, I thought that's it was a The windshield frame looked super familiar, but I couldn't place what it was from. There's there's some other car inside of that thing, and the uh, Pacer halves and the middle section it. are just literally like <laughs> a fishbowl encasing it. That's incredible. That it's like is, the upside down 
Camaro. Did you ever see that? Yes. I've yes, seen that's you amazing. Upside down. Or the sideways VW bus Bills. where it's on its side. Yeah. Oh, I don't think I've seen that. That's pretty good. There have been some good ones. I I was happy enough that MythBusters did that forwards and backwards night with the night yeah. yeah, where they <laughs> took the body off and flipped it around and plopped it back down and then tested if it was more aerodynamic backwards than forwards. I think it was. Was it not? I, I had to no, no, no. Forwards was still because they did the coasting test. They got uh, them both up to a hundred and then let them both coast so that power and stuff was not an issue it was purely the aerodynamics of them which one coasted further because the only thing at that point was wind resistance that was different between them the I guess tail the goes... resistance should have been the same so and yeah the uh, the forward one coasted further because it was more when that car but first still. came out it was the fastest production car in the world briefly is that right very briefly like for um the, Wait, which yeah, car? For the 1980 the when it first came because it came out like in the 70s yeah so it's been around for a minute Those have but always been when cool it first came out it was like the fastest car you could buy huh. wait but the didn't the Ford GT, technically a production car, be wouldn't the GT forty? I don't think was ever an actual production car. It was just, it was a race the first car. Time around, I yeah. think. Oh, uh, I thought it, I thought it was one of those things where they had to have a few months. Oh well, yeah, because like that that Porsche um, Le Mans car was would do two forty something, but that doesn't count. So yeah, yeah and that was in the seventies. Speaking of Porsches, old Porsches, I've always thought the 928s were cool with those little lollipop headlights yeah, that, that pop up uh -huh. forward. Um, but the 944 is always a car that I've dreamt of just tube chassising and powering with something else cool. At that point, something just, not <laughs> Porsche. I just love the body. I mean, I love the FC. I was going to say, it's basically people, the same. <laughs> a lot of people compare the two. There's something about the front end. I like them both for different reasons. There's something about, I think, actually more in like the sort of box flares that they have in the fender area mm -hmm. that I think looks really good about the 944. Like a Stereon? Um, I've just always wanted a tube chassis one and maybe put an FC powertrain in it just, <laughs> just for the hilarity. It might because, be cheaper to run. <laughs> because they're compared to each other so much that uh, you put a 13B underneath it or... Yeah, those are very. Most of those, I mean, yeah. power plant wise, those are very different to compare, though. Well, when yeah, it came out, the, the price and the performance was almost identical between it's the so weird. between They're the nine four four and the FC. Like power plant wise, so like radically different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, but, but that's why rotaries get classed into race classes for twice their displacement because there's just nothing we, of course we bring this up as Pierce yeah, is well, out you, of the you room can't, you can't the throw it in a 1.3 liter class because it's no, no they put them in, in with 2.6 or yeah. whatever they class them as double their displacement in a lot of cases just to try to make them comparable mm -hmm. because power per displacement is so when you have three combustion chambers to a rotor you have three combustion chambers per it's more like a v6 or mm -hmm. a six cylinder of some yeah. sort then you get six power pulses per per revolution, revolution or two or two revolutions whatever it is so it winds up being more like a like a 2.6 v6 or mm -hmm. something so jake left he had to go steve why don't you plug your pluggables 
Instagram. Plug my pluggables. Uh, as per usual, my main Instagram is at I am understeer. And my project build, which is a really boring Instagram right now. Sorry, folks. I'll get back on that car. Is at Marta, M A R T A S W 20. That's for my JDM MR2. Uh, most of my Miata stuff winds up on my main and uh, MR2 stuff I will get back to soon yeah life tends to get in the way of stuff it does I'm trying to get real inspired we were uh, just off air Jordan and I were talking about brakes that thing needs brakes in a bad way maybe has seized rear calipers haven't determined yet but uh, yeah I've heard that's a thing so I'll figure out what's up with that probably do the lines do a good flush throw some pads and rotors and uh, see what's up and then if it needs calipers I'll go from there but then at least everything else would be sorted. That's a big thing. Need some other things for state inspection but uh, I'll get back on that car soon. Yeah at least it's already got the 93 good stuff which is an upgrade for everybody else. Yep it's true and it came with all that so I keep trying to tell myself it's a good it's a good platform. I just need to push that thing forward. And the hardtop helps too with the chassis stiffness Yep. and lightness. Yep. But uh, you can find me on Instagram at The Daily Downshift. And if you like to see more detailed build type of things, you can go to my blog at thedailydownshift.blogspot.com. And this podcast has an email address. It is beerandbackfire at gmail.com. Send us an email if you want, or uh, hit us up on Facebook. We're on there too. I don't have anything else, so y'all have a good night. Bye. Hi. Hi, Sandra. How are you? How's it going? I'm good. Is Pierce coming? He said he was. He's coming over to good, cause, drink. <laughs> good, because uh, Jake brought his impact. Tools? Down. He was talking about some tools. Mm-hmm. Is this any good? Which one? The wheat? Yeah. It's, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's not. It's it's no over on replacement, but it's pretty good. Well, I like it. I think. You want to try it? Yeah. Jordan has one. It's beer. True, and I've it's, been drinking already. It's beer. It's made with beer. And it is made with beer. Made with real beer. <laughs> made with real beer. Bitter beer. I had a lot of fun. Y'all like Cabana? No, I had a Champion. Champion. Where they make the shower beer. Oh, they're the ones that do what? that. Mm-hmm. They, they literally have a beer called Shower Beer. It's called Shower Beer. It's a the- Pilsner. Uh, that sounds like a good shower beer. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. I can talk about it. I'm, I'm right here. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> this is beer and I can talk about beer. I can't talk about cars. That's okay. You have one. You yeah. drive one. I it do. has three pedals. It has three pedals. It you can talk about pedals. that. It's my little Horcrux. It's a fit. What year? 2015. Third gen fit. Mm-hmm. This is like the second or third year they made the third gen fit, I think. Yeah. One of the great dying breeds which is a quality hatchback but the only thing about it is that it does this weird thing whenever i'm trying to ship gears like a what is it rev hang it has wicked rev hang like every modern drive by wire yes it's horrible it's horrible even the matrix is not terrible but pretty bad does yours have electronic throttle yes that's why Mine oh is, yeah, mine is cable 1ZZ. Really? Cable 2ZZ throttle. is cable? Dude, it has the nicest, snappiest <laughs> throttle I've ever used. It's amazing. I, hate you. I don't think Lotus would have even entertained it back then if it were when you want to When you want to swap a 2ZZ into an MR2, that's the one you go to because it's got the cable throttle. Yeah. 
Fits are cool. They are they're fun. I love. I get a lot of compliments for other things about my car, though, specifically my uh, license plate. Which is Horcrux. Nice. She's a Harry Potter nerd. It's, I'm a huge Harry Potter nerd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I get like tagged and asked questions about Harry Potter. You get tagged on like Instagram you, when people see how it? How did you and my wife not just talk for hours when you came over? There was a lot of She's one of the biggest Harry Potter <laughs> nerds I've ever like, The thing about me, I'm very weird. I'm like very shy when you first meet me, but once I get to know you, it's like. Or once you have a couple of drinks. Vomit. Yes. She was also like super tired. Once I've had a few beers, mm-hmm. I'm like there. Yep, first time I came over to record, it was mm. just like, hi, hi, okay. Second time I came over, you were drinking, watching Game of Thrones, and you were like, <laughs> oh my god, you're leaving? <laughs> That's It me. was great. Yeah, no, it was, I, I was like, oh good, I'm, I'm in. No, 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 no I feel comfortable. Anyone, no. That's just how I am as a person. I don't really know how to explain it. So my wife. I understand you do not need to. Like, everyone here sucks, like, so I've had some beer. I hope she didn't think I didn't like her or anything. No, 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 no. I was just saying, like, if y'all ever... No, because that happens all the time. If you ever get onto a... Serious Harry Potter tangent, y'all would love each other. Yeah, y'all could just go like we yep. do with cards. Yeah, you should make a Harry Potter podcast. There you go. <laughs> Let's Harry Potter, Pod, Potter, and Porters. Oh god, <laughs> Erica loves Porters. It's perfect. Potter. We just spin off, spin off podcast. Everybody, look for Potter and Porters in the fall, 2019. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not paying for the SoundCloud on that one. I don't Erica and Sandra. Oh no. Well, that's all right. Pilsners. I do like Pilsners. There we Shower go. Beer. <laughs> Potter, Pilsners, and Porters. You can drink the Pilsners. She'll drink the Porters. You guys can talk about Harry Potter. <laughs> Why don't we just have like a feature in one of yours? <laughs> okay. Harry we'll do it. One, We're not talking uh, about Harry Potter on a car podcast. Come what? on. Like, what what on? Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. How about we talk about we're, the car that they were flying in? Talk about they, it was like Ford was Angelica. Was it Opal Cadet? For, yeah, no, Ford Angelica. Yeah, you know this? Because they say it in the movie. Do they say it in the movie? Yeah. Oh. It's a Ford Angelica. Okay, I don't know what a Ford Angelica is. I don't need it. It's probably like what came before the Monday. I was <laughs> going to say, it's a precursor to the Monday. Hey, look, that's fine now. They were talking about the, the Ford Caldina? Or no, that's a, that's a Toyota. Yes. Uh, oh, man. I might be saying it incorrectly. Ford Wait, there's Angelia. Angelia. No, I'm sorry. Angria. Angria. Angria, my bad. What was the... It's a combat car that was designed and manufactured by Ford UK. It's related to the Ford Prefect. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Let's go with... Popular and the later Ford Popular. What is it? Your dog wants to go out. (laughs) She's not an English teacher. (laughs) No. I teach basic Far from it. (laughs) And I read, I read the first book, like, what, ten years ago? Sandra, this is really bad for audio. Come back over here. Oh, sorry. It's probably gonna get... This is this is what's gonna be at the, the end. end. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Where Sandra comes in from... Talk Hi. about... Chilling it. Talk about the Ford things. that's in Harry Potter that no one's ever heard of. Wait, but the C Ford is The flying it? car. The flying it's car. It's a flying car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Weasley's flying car. Mm-hmm. The Weasley's flying car. Yeah, mm-hmm. they take. I've the seen car. the movies. Oh, you've seen the, but you haven't read the books. Nope. <sighs> it's a shame because the books are way better. I try. Uh, yeah, I'm telling you, you and my life, my wife, whatever. Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> 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 You know, no, true. Happy wife, happy life. That's what they say. No, you guys would get along super well. So yeah. just get a few beers in me, and we're like, I can't stop talking. Okay, we'll have you guys over. Jordan and I will just uh, hang out and talk cars, and, and you guys hang out and talk cars. And feed me alcohol, color. and we're good. Yeah. Uh, okay. We can do that. We can do that. That's a thing that can happen. Yeah. 
We'll make it happen. Okay, I'll leave you be now. That was cool. Mm-hmm. Good talk. Yep, good Toodles. talk. Let us know when Pierce is here. Oh, also just another. Send him. We'll know. Another parallel. No, he's driving Par- this little white thing that the looks like an opal Swift? that's not the, an the, opal. The Swift that's not, uh, that's actually kind of a Geo. A Geo. Yeah. Swift. I thought it was an opal when I first saw it, but it's not. I don't know anybody. When was the last opal? time you've seen an opal? Here. She lived in Germany okay, for a while. So uh, 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 Whenever I see a little white car that has like the weird, I don't know. Bubble tailgate? Yeah, we'll call it that. I think automatically. Bubble butt. Bubble butt. That's cool. I automatically think an opal because when we were in Germany, opal was very popular, and my dad drove an opal. My mom had opal. That's a car fact that she knew that I did not. I did not realize opal was a German car brand. I just marked it on my calendar on that day. She did. She made an anniversary for it. Jordan didn't know a car thing. I didn't know opal was German. I knew something that he didn't about cars. You know how mind blowing that is. You also knew oh, what the Ford is or whatever. Pierce is here. Can't be like peeking through a door in the dark with your beard just oh, kind of yes, sticking out. I've been here like, for like a minute. I was wondering where you were at. I'm here. I see you. We're talking about cars from Harry Potter. Pierce, what's up? <laughs> yeah, the Nash, the Nash no, Wrangler. It's a no. Ford Anglia. Oh, it's, it's mine. a Ford Anglia. I'm yeah. sorry. Should I take Luna's collar? Use your gun, bro. Will that huh? help with sound? Oh, thanks, man. 